Pastor Javen will continue the series called Exodus from Exile, exploring the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning we'll look at how sin never wants to let us go, and sometimes we have to confront it before we let it grow. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. When I was a young buck, uh, I can't remember if this was my junior or senior year, I don't remember exactly when it was, but my dad and my brother, my brother's older, a lot older than I am, uh, just want to put that out there, a lot older than I am, um, they had a business together, and part of that business was um, was pest control. And uh, and so sometimes my brother would ask me to go to a house after school to do something, and it wasn't often because I wasn't very reliable. But he uh, he asked me one day to go by a house and uh, drill some uh, drill holes underneath uh, on the foundational pillar so he could come by later in that day and spray, do the termite treatment for the for the home. So I did that, and as I was leaving, I got in my two-tone Dodge Ram 1980-something pickup truck, which I look like this, driving in. And, uh, and so I'm, uh, I leave, and there's a curve that I take very irresponsibly. And uh, there was this concrete uh, drain that was on the curve. Uh, it, uh, I brought a picture, uh, that, uh, something like that. This one wasn't nicely cut into the grass and placed there. This one was exposed and out on the corner, okay? So the concrete up and everything just out. And I ran over that in my truck. Well, somehow or another, I don't remember it even affecting the truck, but I guess it did. Somehow or another, Dad found out, and he asked me what I ran over later that day. I said, what? Ran over? You know... The immediate signs of guilt. And um, so he said, no, you ran over something. What'd you run over? I don't know. I don't know what run. No, you know. So he said, I'll tell you what. Let's reroute where you went this afternoon on your way home. For real? So we get in the truck. I go back to where I was that day after school. And I drive back home the way that I came. And as we're leaving that house, we go around the curve, which at this time I take textbook. Perfectly take the curve. And uh, he points at that drain, that concrete drain. And he said, you ran over that, didn't you? How do you know that I ran over that drain? Someone was watching me and called you. Someone told or you spied on me that day just to see, was I going to be reliable and go do the work you'd asked me to do? There's no way that you just knew that I ran over that drain. But as much as it frustrated me that my dad made me get back in the truck and reroute my route from that afternoon and force me to confess what I did that wasn't right in how I drove that truck, as much as it frustrated me, it was his right to do that because he was my dad. And in fact, I would say it was his responsibility to do that, to get me to confess to driving irresponsibly and doing something wrong. It was his right and his responsibility. We're going into week five of our series, Exodus from Exile, uh, today, where we're looking at the exodus of the Israelites from Babylon after being taken captive by them. Uh, we, you can see that happen through the book of Daniel and what takes place with them. But the reason they're taken captive is because of sin in their life. And God allowed them to, to be taken captive. He had sent warnings to the prophets and others and told them, you need to change your life. This is going to happen. They didn't listen. They got taken captive. But God in his goodness made a promise, repent. Daniel and many of those repented. 
And he told them that they that he was right there. He wasn't going to leave them. His arms would be open for them to return. And in fact, he sent a prophet to prophesy, to prophesy to them and to make a promise that this would last no more than 70 years, which is a long time. And so in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're at that place where it's beyond the 70 years where they're beginning to come back to their homeland. And we said from the very beginning, from week one, we said that there's promises that come with sin. There's promises with them. And the promises of sin are not good. But there's promises that come from God. And the promises of God are far greater than the promises of sin. And when God stirs our heart and points those things out and moves us, we should heed that and and follow that stirring and move towards God and move towards the promises that God has for us and for our for our life. And so we've been looking at that and what it looks and what we can learn from these guys is they leave this life of captivity and walk into a life of the promises of God. And we can do the same thing. We can learn from them as we journey in our faith. We talked about the importance of the fact that God wants obedient hearts. He wants hearts that want to be obedient to him. He wants hearts that long to serve him. Not just following a list of to-dos and things like that. Yes, sacrifice comes with obedience because there's going to be things we have to give up. Yes, serving comes with obedience because even Jesus himself came and he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. He gave us an example in this life. And, and so we live by that and we follow that. And so sacrifice and service is a part of it. But what God wants is obedient hearts. That's what he longs for. We talked about the fact that God wants us to be unified with one purpose, with one mind, together pursuing one goal. He, Jesus prayed in the garden for unity. He wants us to be unified. And the very first thing, the, the thing that needs to be first and foremost in our lives at all times is being in the presence of God, worshiping him, building an altar first and foremost in our life. Where we repent to God every chance we get and every chance we have to. And we get in his presence every chance we can. We talked last week about the opposition that we're going to face. It doesn't, even as followers of Christ, we're going to face opposition and and the enemy is going to attack us more and more because we have a spiritual enemy that until Christ returns, he does not want us living for God. And so he's going to attack us and we're going to face opposition. And his, his mission statement in life, Jesus said, is to steal, kill and destroy. And so we have, we, we have to make that decision. I'm going to obey the word of God. I'm going to live by the word of God. I'm not going to let anything discourage me, deceive me. I'm not going to let fear have a place in my heart. I'm just going to live to obey him and leave all the consequences to God that come with that. This week, as we journey further into Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see that Ezra and Nehemiah both had to confront a couple of situations within the family of faith, within the body there of their people. And we're going to see that as followers of Christ in scripture, it's all right. It's our responsibility to confront sin that we see in our fellow brothers, sisters in Christ, because that sin wants to destroy their life. And the confrontation is meant to bring healing and meant to bring restoration and meant to bring renewal in their, in their walk with him. It's, it's not meant to be a negative thing. And I said a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about the unity, I said that We shouldn't tolerate sin in the body for the sake of unity. And I said that I would come back to that in a couple weeks. Well, today's the day. So, yay. And and we we get to, to look at that. But the reason we don't is because unity is important. Jesus prayed for us to be unified. But he prayed for us to be unified around him and around God and around their word. The word of God. And we, so that means we're not to be unified around anything other than that. And a tolerance of sin 
when we allow that to come in and we tolerate sin within the body, then what that means is we're unified, not just around God, we're unifying ourselves around sin as well. And that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to a different standard. We live by a different standard than the world lives by. And today we're going to see a couple of situations that Ezra and Nehemiah both had to speak into. They both had to confront. And we hear the word confront and we think, Sometimes a bad, like it's bad, like con- confrontation has got to be harsh. It's got to be hard. It's got to be upfront. It's got to be in your face. That's not what this confrontation is meant to be. And some of, and there's, there's some in this room that have different uh, concepts of how they like confrontation or don't like confrontation. Some can't stand confrontation. Don't want to be around conversa- confrontation. Don't want to have anything to do with confrontation. If, if they need to, if they are like, have this feeling they've got to confront somebody. I don't, I don't want to do it. Somebody else, please step up. If they, if there's something they've got to be confronted about, we're going to run. We're going to get away. Cause I don't, I don't want to deal. I don't want to be confronted. There's some that say, I don't like confrontation. Don't want to deal with confrontation, but I realize it's necessary. I realize it's important for myself. I realize it's important to do that for someone else because the goal is to bring healing. It's bring, it's to, it's to help. So even though I don't like it, I understand it and I need to do it. And then there's some that are just like, confrontation, point me in the right direction. I'm ready. Give it to me. You don't want to take them? I'll confront them. Let's go. Let's do this. Oh, you want to confront me about something? Let's do it. Let's talk. Let's go. Some people just love confrontation. They live for confrontation. But again, the whole point of confrontation, what we're talking about today, is it's all meant to be done in love. It's all meant to be done with with the goal of healing and the goal of restoration and the goal of renewal in our relationship with one another and with God. All right? So we're going to start in Nehemiah today. We've been starting in Ezra and then going to Nehemiah. We're going to start in Nehemiah. We're going to go backwards today from Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we're going to go first. And we're going to look at what Nehemiah had to confront. Nehemiah chapter 5, start at verse 1. Remember last week we were talking about uh, they were building the wall and they were facing opposition. Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah chapter 6. Those, those two chapters bookend what takes place in chapter 5. So notice what's taking place in chapter 5 in the middle of outside opposition. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to, to pay our taxes. We, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy and our, our children are, are just like theirs. Yet we've had to sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have, we've already sold some of our daughters and we're helpless to do anything about it for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. Nehemiah said, when I heard their complaints, he said, I was very angry. He said, after thinking it over, after pondering it, he spent some time, okay, thinking about the situation and how he needed to handle it. He said, I spoke out against these nobles and officials and I told them, you are hurting your own relatives. That's the key there. You're hurting your own relatives. And the way you're hurting them is by charging interest when they borrow money. And then he said, then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. So basically, what we're seeing Nehemiah deal with is that in the middle of outside opposition, Sambalat, Tobiah, we talked about them last week, the Arabs, the Ashbadites, being surrounded in outside opposition while trying to rebuild the wall. In the middle of outside opposition, he's got inside opposition. 
Because the sin he's having to deal with is basically the fact that they are not loving their neighbor as they love themselves. And so he's got, there's walls being built between wall builders. There's walls between each other and the relationships between the body. And Nehemiah knew that the dissension and the division that was coming from that was not going to be productive in what they were trying to do in the bigger picture. And so he had to confront it. And he had to tell them, look, you're hurting your family. They may not be your immediate family, but they're your family. And you're hurting them because all you're doing is looking out for yourself. But that's human tendency, isn't it? Human tendency is to, to only look out for yourself, to get yours, to take care of yourself, to not consider your neighbor, to not consider the other person. Human tendency is to build what you want to build, to build your kingdom, to build what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. It's not human tendency to let God build in you what God wants to build and to build through you what God wants to build through you. But even Jesus, when he came and he walked on this earth, he demonstrated this. He, he spoke it. He reflected it. He, he made it important that how we love each other needs to be a key aspect of our life. I mean, he reiterated it to his disciples before he, before he was arrested. He told them, he said, guys, a new command, a fresh command. I want to make this fresh to you. I want to make this, I want you to put this first and foremost in your mind, love one another. Because the way you love each other, when people see the way you love each other, they will know that you have been a follower of Christ. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is what makes you distinct from the world? Because there should be something different about those who follow Christ than the world. And what makes you distinct, one of the things that makes you distinct from the world is the way you consider one another over yourself. As Paul said it. It's the way that when someone has hurt you, You don't let that hurt become a grudge and become bitterness and to grow into a deep root that produces division and more in your life. You work towards repentance and and reconciliation. When you've wronged somebody, the way that you're able to go to them humbly and repent and say, I've wronged you, I've hurt you, I didn't mean to. And then you go from there and you heal and the relationship grows. The way that you're able to do that with each other makes you different from the world around you. So you should be able to do that. So we, we, we need to ask the same questions that Nehemiah is faced with asking. Are we compelled and controlled by the lust of our flesh, what we want to get? Are we compelled and controlled by the greed of our hearts? How much can I get? Or are we compelled and controlled by our love for God and our love for others? It's what makes us distinct from the world around us. It was what makes us different and stand out from the world around us. The way that we're able to love, the way that we're able to forgive, the way that we're able to move forward with each other and not allow dissension to destroy. Does that make us different? Look at what Paul told when he told the, the church when he wrote his letter in Romans. He said, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of the law. And he goes in verse 10, he says, love does, not wrong, does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirement of God's law. In other words, the only thing you should be indebted to anyone else with is love. That's not, I'm not, I realize that there's, there's things about this life. There's, you, there's mortgages, there's things like that. 
But what Paul is saying is you, you should not feel indebted to anyone in any way other than through, to by loving them. And you should not make someone feel indebted to you in any way that makes them feel like their debt to you makes them a slave. Because we're called to love. And Jesus even pointed that the way we love, the more, when we do love each other, we're loving God. We love God by loving one another. But Nehemiah wasn't the only one that had to deal with issues. Ezra had to deal with them too. Ezra chapter 9. We'll start at verse 1. This is when they had moved in. They had done all that they needed to do, brought, brought the gifts that they came with from the king that all the people collected. They'd given them to the priest. Verse 1, it says, when these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and they said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other people living in the land. They've taken up the detestable practices. That's the key. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, they're not ites, and the Amorites. Verse 2, he says, For the men of Israel have married women from these people, and they've taken them as wives for their sons. We'll talk more about this in a second. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat down utterly shocked. This was signs of repentance. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in, the, in mourning, in my clothes torn. I fell to my knees. I lifted my hands to the Lord my God, and I prayed. And he started his prayer saying, Oh my God, I'm utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you. For our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. So Ezra is found himself returning to the lands. Zerubbabel and some other leaders had brought a first wave. They had began the building the temple. This is what we talked about with them. They're the ones that built the altar first. They started building the temple. They're getting the temple done. Ezra comes back because he's a scribe. He understands the word of God. He knows the law of God backwards and forwards. He's able to teach the law of God to the people, how God wants them to live one with another. And he comes back and he hears this about the body. And what he hears is this. It's the fact that they have blended the world around them with their faith. They have added the ways of the culture to their following God. And the mixed marriages that they're talking about in this passage of scripture, it's, it's talking about, it's not that they married someone that looked different than them. It's not that they married different races. That, that is happening. But the problem with the marriages is that they were marrying people who did not live for and follow and serve the God that they serve. The only God, the one true God, Yahweh, the one who would rescue them 
from slavery in Egypt, the one who had been with them and redeemed them, the one that had, had been with them even now as they're walking out of captivity from Babylon and Persia at this point in time, who is being allowing them to come back, allowing them to build the temple. They are taking again people from outside of their body, following God, and they're bringing those lifestyles into their camp. And so now they're not only, they're not worshiping God alone. They're adding the ways of the world to their worship to God. And that's what the problem was. That was the blending of their faith with the culture. And so Nehemiah tells them, if you keep reading Ezra chapter nine and then go into Ezra chapter 10, Ezra, Ezra, excuse me, tells them, he says, look, you have got to cut yourselves off from everything about this. You've got to get rid of everything about this lifestyle of sin. And you've got to walk away from it. And watch what he tells them in Ezra chapter 10, verse 7. He says, A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all exiles should come to Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, those who fail to come within three days. And basically what he's saying is, if you fail to come, you're, you're saying, I'm not going to change my ways. I'm not going to cut off what you're asking me to cut off, what you're telling me to do. If you fail to come within three days, if the leaders and elders decide, you forfeit all your property and you are expelled from the assembly of the exiles. In other words, what Ezra is telling them is you have no place in the body of the people of God. What he was telling them is the reason that is, is because you don't, reflect the father. You're reflecting the world. You're not reflecting the father. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That doesn't sound very Christian. We don't think that sounds Christian like that. What does Jesus say? Let's look at what Jesus says. We're going to start by looking at this, by looking at a statement from him in Luke chapter 17. He says, so watch yourselves. If another believer sins, he tells them you need to rebuke that person in their sin. And then he says, if they were, If there's repentance, then forgive them, simply put. But it has to start by rebuking. Rebuke's a strong word. Nobody in here wants to be rebuked, do you? It's like, I didn't wake up today, like, I want to be rebuked. Let's be rebuked today. That sounds like fun. Nobody wants to be rebuked. We don't like it when we're rebuked. But Jesus says, if you see sin, you need to rebuke it. But we have to remember that everything that Jesus calls us to do, we're called to do it in love. We talked about that some last week, how we defend our hope and we defend our faith. It's with gentleness, it's with respect, it's with love. And when Paul wrote his letter to the church of Galatia, because they were having things come in trying to blend their faith. And, and he writes them in Galatians chapter six, and he tells them, brothers, sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, then you are godly. You should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. In other words, guard yourself as you go to them. And he says, share each other's burdens. And in this way, you're obeying the law of Christ because you're loving each other. I'm doing it because I love you. Because I know that 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 sin is trying to destroy you. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. If you think it's it's not, you're not important enough to help them, or you think you're not good enough to help them, or whatever... God's saying, you do, you, you need to help them. You're not too good to help them. Why? Because sin never stops chasing us. As much, even when we come to Christ and we ask 
God to forgive us and we begin to live our life for Christ and we're following him, sin doesn't stop chasing us. In fact, it probably chases us even harder because, he, because the enemy knows what God can do through us and with us. So he chases us even harder. And that's why we have to confront sin in our life. Or we need to hope that we have people close enough to us in relationship with us who love us, who if they see us begin to walk into something that is not good for us, that is sinful, that they will come to us and lovingly say, you need to be careful with that. Because sin wants to grab us and it wants to take us back into that lifestyle of captivity. And it'll do it if we don't confront it. And he goes on in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 6. He says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature, they're going to harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And then he says, so let's, get, let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. In other words... Don't give up. You need to keep working because the enemy's not going to stop attacking. You need to keep working. You need to keep working with each other. You need to stand for each other, stand with each other, confront the sin that wants to take us down in our life because the enemy wants to destroy and bring death and bring decay. But God wants us to do something good for him and for his name. So don't avoid that. Don't walk away from it. So Jesus says, we rebuke, we call it out. We do it with gentleness. We do it with love. And then if they repent, what did Jesus say? He said, we forgive them. That's hard for the world to do, right? Well, maybe they, maybe they forgive, but you lose any influence, you lose any place of position, you lose anything, because now they've just, the world writes you off. But Jesus said, if they repent, forgive. Because you, you grow and you heal and you move forward with each other. Okay, well, that's great, Jesus, if they repent. What if they don't repent? What do we do in that situation? Well, we look at another conversation that Jesus had with his followers and those around him. You you can find the whole story in Matthew chapter 18, but basically what Jesus tells them is if there's someone in sin or something that happens in your relationship, then you, you go to the person privately in relationship with them. You talk to them. In today's time, Jesus would say, you don't get on Facebook, you don't get on Twitter, you don't get on Instagram, you don't go live and talk about it to the world. You go to the person in private and you have a conversation with them. You talk about what you see happening in their life. And then he says, if they don't accept that, they don't receive that, then take some others who are close to you and close to them, that they love, that they know love them, go to them, talk to them, and speak into this relationship and say, look, we love you. We, it's not just me. It's all of us. We love you. We care about you. We want to see you healed from this. And Jesus says then, if they don't receive it then, that's when you take it to the church. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. He says, if they still refuse to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. That's the words of Jesus. But let me explain something. Think about how Jesus treated the pagans and the tax collectors. He loved them. He he still loved them. The difference was this. What Jesus was saying is this. He's saying, okay, if they refuse to repent to the sin then what you understand then is they no longer reflect the Father. They reflect the world. That's what they reflect. That's who they 
are a picture of. But you have to think and remember how Jesus confronted things. When he confronted the woman at the well, who had been married to five different men, the man she was living with now wasn't even her husband. Jesus confronted her in love and how he talked to her. He said, I, I come to give you, to give you life. I've come to you, if you drink the water that I want to give you, you will never thirst again. In other words, all these things you're running around chasing in life, trying to fill these thirsts that you think you have, have a relationship with me and you won't be thirsting for those things anymore. When the woman was called the act of adultery and these men brought her to him, Jesus, what did he do? He told the people who was around, well, I'll tell you what, if you don't have any sin, you throw a stone. So Jesus did not confront her by condemning her. He made all these other men feel guilty. They turned and walked away. And then he stood up and he looked at her and he said, they didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But what did he tell her after that? He said, go and sin no more. He didn't just say what you did was okay. What you did is wrong. I've got, there's so much more for you. Walk away from that lifestyle of sin. Change your life. When Jesus, when, when Jesus saw uh, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, the people were building a wall around Zacchaeus. They didn't want Zacchaeus to see Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went straight to the tax collector. And he said, I want to come hang out at your house today. Because he wanted a relationship with Zacchaeus. Did he approve of Zacchaeus cheating people? No. And Zacchaeus knew that. And so Zacchaeus changed his life and he changed how he treated people. But who was Jesus more direct with? He was more direct with the Pharisees and the ones who claimed to reflect the Father and reflect Jesus' Father. And he would directly let them know how they were leading people astray. He would call them blind guides. Now, he didn't do it in, in a way that meant that he didn't like them and he hated them. In fact, when you read John chapter 3, you see that Nicodemus, one of those Pharisees, came and Jesus had a conversation with him. And one of the most famous statements of Jesus ever came from that conversation. Where Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, that God so loved the world, Nicodemus. That he gave his one and only son, me, so that you can have life. Jesus loved, but he knew how important it was to confront those who claimed to be followers of God, who claimed to represent God, who claimed to reflect God. And it was important to confront them and say, you're not doing it the way God intends. And in fact, you're not reflecting God, you're reflecting the world. It was important. And people needed to know that. And I want to just share one more passage of scripture because I want us to see how important this is within the body of Christ to deal with sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a fun passage of scripture that often doesn't get read in church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said this. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. And then he tells them, he says, you're so proud of yourselves. But you should be mourning in sorrow and ashamed 
He's not, he's not speaking shame on them. There's a difference in speaking shame on someone and getting them to understand that this is something that we should be ashamed of in our life because of the sin of it. And he says, you should remove that man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit. And, and as though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this man. In other words, not judgment to condemn. Judgment, a decision has been made that they do not reflect the body of Christ and they shouldn't have a say in the body of Christ. He says, I've already passed that in the name of the Lord Jesus. He said, you must call a meeting of the church. I'll be present with you in spirit. And so will the power of the Lord Jesus. Then you must throw that man out and hand him over to Satan. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But why? Why do you, do, why do you give him over to the lifestyle that, that he is following Satan in? That's what Paul's saying. Just go ahead and give him over to the lifestyle that he's following that's being led by Satan. Go ahead and give him over to that. Because the hope is that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord's return. In other words, he'll realize it's sin. Because what did Paul say that God did in Romans chapter 1? He said God gave them over to their immoral nature. He allowed it to take place because God's not, God, God's not a God that forces you to love him. So he gives them over. And so he says, you're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that sin is like a little yeast that spreads to the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Listen to him. He said, I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or, greed, who are, or people who are greedy or people who cheat people or people who worship idols. In other words, the world lives like the world, but you are a follower of God and there should be something different about you. He says, you would have to lead this world to avoid people like that. I mean that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, but indulges in sexual sin, isn't greedy, worships idols, is abusive, is a drunkard or cheats people. That's not an exhaustive list. I think Paul's probably just hitting things that he's heard about in the Corinthian church. He says, don't even eat with such people. He says, it's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. But listen to this. It certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Wow. That's tough, isn't it? Paul is telling this church, he says, look, there is no room for celebration of sin in the body of Christ. We should not celebrate sin. It's one thing to love the sinner and to love the people of the world and to hope to see them receive the goodness of God and to walk in the gospel light of God and and what Jesus has done for them. That's one thing. But once someone accepts the forgiveness of God and then claims to live for God and wants to live a lifestyle for God, they are held to a different standard at that point. And so Paul is saying, if they bring this lifestyle of sin in, we don't celebrate it. It has to be confronted. And they have to know, no, that life does not reflect God. It reflects the world. And that can be tough. I get it. It's not easy. 
but it's what scripture calls us to real quick. I've got a, a list. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them throw up on the screen. This is a list. When you look through the gospels, when you look through the epistles from Paul and the other apostles and their writings, their letters, these are things that they call out. Again, I don't think this is an exhaustive thing, but these are a lot of them. These are things they call out as sin. And as I mentioned, these don't applaud when I get to something and you're thinking, that's right, we need to talk about that. Don't, don't applaud. Because here's the thing. People genuinely struggle with some of these things. And the world doesn't like us to use that terminology to say we struggle with this. Because if you say you struggle with that, then you're saying, well, something's wrong with you. If you struggle with that. And some things we're willing to say, yeah, that's wrong to struggle. Other things in this list, we're not willing to say that's wrong. The world's not willing to say that's wrong. But the thing is, the fact of the matter is, we are all broken people. Every single one of us has something in this list probably that we can become prone to. And the enemy knows our weak spots. And the enemy knows what he wants to attack in our life. And if we're not careful, we can fall into those things. We're all broken people, but that's the thing about Jesus. That's why we said, used, uh, pointed out the verse that he said last week that I've come for the sick people. I've come for those who are broken. And he gave his life on a cross for us for that reason. You see, a lot of these things, a lot of times, there's no room for the, any of these sins in the body of Christ. There's no room for them. And sometimes some of these we want to talk about a lot. And some of them now today in the church globally is, is getting tainted. And there's tolerance taking place. Like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Some of them get glossed over and don't even get looked at at all. But there's no place for gossip in the body of Christ. But how often does that happen? Especially in the form of prayer requests, right? Or slander, talking bad about another person. I would never talk bad about someone. Are you sure? Right? I mean, there's no, there's no place for, for bitterness. There's no place for hatred. But man, in these last four or eight years, I've seen a lot of hatred from pulpits towards things. But there's no room for those things in the body of Christ. We shouldn't celebrate it. There's no room for cheating others, taking advantage of people. There's no room for abusiveness. We should not be abusive towards others with our words or physically. There's no place for that in the body of Christ. There's no place for pride. There's no place for deceiving other people. There's no place for lying in the body of Christ. There's no place for drunkenness. And it saddens me sometimes when I see prominent figures in the church glorifying alcoholism, basically. There was one time I saw a very prominent figure in the church world went to a wedding. Again, I'm saying none of this. There's no condemnation on any of this. Please know that. I love each and everybody. But he talked about a wedding he went to that had alcohol. I mean, that's fine. But he made sure to post on his, on his, uh, on his media, I can't remember what it was, social media, that you can't have a party without this. But I thought, you are a prominent leader. 
in the church. And what did you just glorify to the alcoholic? Maybe you can control yourself. But for some, the one turns into two, that turns into three, that turns into four, that turns into more, that turns into a stupor. Right? And that's what God said. There's no place for drunkenness in the body of Christ. So we have to be careful what what we celebrate. He says there's no room for celebrating sexual immorality. There's no room for celebrating sexual immorality in the body of Christ. Well, what is sexual immorality? Sexual, sexual immorality, that's a big term. It covers a wide array of things. So, man, I wish Jesus would have given us some kind of parameters when he walked this earth. He did. He did. And the world wants to twist a lot of scripture today in regards to sexual immorality. That's one of the big things it's twisting a lot of today. But Jesus set parameters for us. He was asked a question about divorce. And so before he went into answering his question about divorce, he, he described his parameters. Let's look at those. Let's look at Jesus' parameters. Matthew chapter 19. He said, haven't you read the scriptures? So Jesus replied, they recorded that from the very beginning, God made them what? Male and female. There's the parameter of our gender. God made you male. He made you female. Because each one was given a purpose in regards to sexuality and relationship. So he created them male and he created them female. And then he goes into the next verse, verse five. He says, and he said this, that explains why a man leaves his father and mother is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. There's a marriage that takes place and in that marriage is the unit of sexual purity. So Jesus set the parameters in those quick two statements. And I'm thankful for that because he defined it for us. And so basically what we see and what what we get out of that is sexual immorality is anything outside of that. Anything outside of male and female married together. That's sexual immorality. That means pornography. That means one night stands. That means uh, taking advantage of women. Nowadays, women taking advantage of men. It means homosexuality. It's wide. Anything outside of the way God created and defined man and woman in marriage and sexual purity within that. And Jesus says, God says, there is no place. The scripture tells us, Paul, in obedience to God, leads the church and says, there's no place for celebrating sin in the body of Christ. And he goes into chapter six and he says, there's no sin like sexual sin. There's no sin that does to the body what sexual sin does to the body. There's no room for celebrating sin, Paul says. The Word of God says. And Jesus tells us to confront it. Scripture tells us to confront it. And sometimes obedience to God means speaking the truth and love to others. Right? And that's hard. But here's the thing. We are called to be different. The world, we, the church, the body of Christ is called to be different. And if we are drawing 
the world to something that is no different than them, then we are not drawing the world to Christ. And if we are drawing the world to a group of people who are selfish and only look out for themselves, we are not drawing anybody to Christ. Sin will never stop chasing us. It's not going to stop. It's going to constantly come after us. And sin has to be confronted before we let it grow. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and he would come to convict. So sometimes the Holy Spirit convicts us. We don't need someone else to point something out in our life. And if the Holy Spirit ever is working in you and convicting you about something, then follow his voice. If the Holy Spirit is ever leading you or leading someone to come talk to you about something, and if he's leading you to do it, do it lovingly. Nehemiah took time before he did it. Ezra prayed and he fasted before he did it. Lovingly, take time, pray, fast. Lovingly go to the person. If you're the one being come to, receive lovingly. And and just ask, is this true? Is this real? And be open. Because the whole front of, the whole purpose of confrontation is to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring renewal, and to keep us in relationship with the Father. Because the enemy wants to destroy that. Stand with us this morning. We're just going to close just in a quick moment, in a, in a moment of worship. And I just want you to just open your heart to the Father and the Holy Spirit in this time. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, then just take this moment. If there's anything that you know in your life that you need to repent of, take this moment, repent. If God begins to lay something and someone on your heart that you've been seeing things in their life, start praying for that person in this moment. Start listening to them up and start asking God, God, what do I need to do? I want to be obedient, but I want them to know it's because I love them. If someone's come to you recently and talked to you about something, begin to seek God in this moment about that. God, is that something, do I need to receive that? Do I need to let that push me toward change in my life? Or just spend this time just seeking the Father and speaking the name of Jesus over your life, over every situation in your life, and over all your relationships in this life. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccanvin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.